Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Time. There's nothing more valuable. It's what drives everyone to make the most of every moment. We celebrate living large in the now. In a city where time disappears, we create experiences that electrify the soul and memories that will last forever. We go big, we go all night, and here, everyone is invited. So get loose and get loud. This is Circa. You'll have the time of your life. This is the Arash Markazi Show on the Mightier 1090 ESPN Radio. Hello and welcome to the Arash Markazi Show presented by the Sporting Tribune on the Mightier 1090 ESPN Radio in Southern California. 98.5 The Bet in Las Vegas and the Hawaii Sports Radio Network 95.1 FM and AM 760 in Hawaii. Uh, A lot to get to here on a beautiful Wednesday. So let's not waste any time. Let's head out to the Circus Sports Guest Hotline. And joining us from the Sporting Tribune, it's Brandon Deutsch, Grant Mona, Jake Dicker, our all-star crew. Uh, let's start here. And it's not a Los Angeles team, but I am so fascinated by what's happening with the Detroit Pistons last night. And 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 I, I, I never thought that, that I'd be watching Detroit Pistons game here in December. <laughs> but when a team does something that's never been done at least in a single season in professional sports history, not just in the NBA. Uh, 27 straight games, guys. Um, again, they're, they're one away from the record of 28 that the 76ers did over two seasons. I have no doubt. I have confidence in them that they will break that record. Uh, I was shocked that no other baseball team, for example, you, again, you play 162 games that no team has been on a uh, drought this bad. Um, and, and the most amazing thing about this for me is sort of normally the coach would be gone at this point, but you sign the coach to the biggest contract in NBA history, a six year, $78.5 million contract to a, a guy, by the way, that everyone around the league adores. So it's not like some guy got, got a contract that did not deserve it. I think there was a lot of people who were, who were surprised that they got that contract. We love Monty Williams, but when you look at his history, he's, he's a good coach, but he's never, I, to my knowledge, has never won a championship. So, um, shocking there. Brandon, let's start with you. I mean, again, normally wouldn't be talking about the Detroit Pistons, but when you do something that's never been done in professional sports history, we have to talk about it. Yeah, you know, I'll say this. Grant and I were pretty high on them going into last year. Um, not not this not this season, but last year, you know, Cade was coming back. Uh, obviously, then he got hurt. Uh, I think, what was it? It was like 10 games in or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, sorry, I lost connection for a second. But uh, Monty Williams was just, he, he's a great coach. I mean, he has a good track record. And they have some good young players. Like, I think he needs to play Jay Nivey more. Jaden Ivey's fantastic, um, and, you know, he keeps playing Killian Hayes, and I think we know what Killian Hayes is, is at this point. I called him Dante Exum 2.0 out of the draft, and now Exum looks really good, and <laughs> Killian Hayes still isn't good at basketball. I don't know why he gets any minutes, um, you know. Uh, but, again, it's also tough when you have two ball-dominant guards. We've seen this so many times, and you draft Ivy, right, and he also needs the ball in his hands. And you have Cade, who absolutely needs the ball in his hands because he's like a mini Luka Doncic. Obviously, he's not as good as Luka Doncic, but he can impact the game in similar ways. 
And it's crazy how a guy can get 41 points last night, 15 out of 21 from the floor, couldn't miss in the fourth quarter. Um, and then, you know, nine assists, five rebounds, or vice versa. Then Monty Williams draws up a play for Alec Burks when they're down five. It's like, do you want to lose at this point? I mean, I, I think it's more a rush. I don't think they're the worst basketball team in history, um, talent-wise. I mean, they have Duran, like I mentioned, Ivy, Cade, Bogdan's been great. He just came back, Bogdanovich, but he's fantastic. You have some guys who can play basketball. I think it's once you start losing, it's like, can you get this monkey off my back? We just keep losing, and all they know how to do is lose. So, like, you know, it's similar. The Angels a few years ago, famously, Joe Madden, right? Like, no one ever thought they would come back, right? But, man, they found a way to win after 15 or 16 games. But it seemed like they would never win again either. So, the Pistons will win another basketball game, probably. (laughs) But once they do, they'll probably knock a couple couple teams off once they figure out how to win again. But I don't think this is the worst talent-wise team in NBA history. The Hornets were worse that one year. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I mean, like Brandon said, this team has talent that Brandon and I thought would probably develop more than it is now. Um, You know, Jalen Duran, I think, is an excellent center prospect, and he's very young. Cade Cunningham has shown flashes of dominance and brilliance over a 10-game period in his career. And right now, look, he had 41 last night, like Brandon said. It really wasn't his fault that they lost. I just see a lot of disconnection. There's no continuity. Um, I I just don't see what, what kind of system Monty Williams is using to provide for the young players and I know it's not just on Monty Williams it's also on the players but there's just so much talent that I can point at and look at and say how is this team losing this many games because if I look at it on paper and I did this before the season this year and last year you're looking at a team with some good young talent some athleticism but from Monty Williams perspective you can't resign. You just got hired. You're going to keep the money. <laughs> yeah, That's usually to. what happens. You got to keep the money. So he's not leaving. You're kind of in a predicament there. And if you're the front office, do you sell house on Bogdanovich? Do you sell house on Burks? You should to a contender. Gather as much draft stock and picks as you can. And maybe just kind of restart next year. I mean, look, there's a lot of teams that go through big, bad slumps. And look, the Pistons are a historic franchise. They're just in one of them right now. I touched on it. So if you look at the at the track record that Monty Williams has had going back to his time with the, the Pelicans, um, so he lost in the first round, missed the playoffs, missed the playoffs, missed the playoffs, lost in the first round, missed the playoffs. With the Suns, obviously, as a coach of the year, lost in the finals, but the, his last two years of the Suns before he got fired, lost in the conference semifinals, basically second round, lost in the conference semi-final so i think that was the surprise for me when you have a coach who like people can knock doc but again yes he you know he he won a championship he got to multiple nba finals you can say that he's lived this amazing life in his career like off of that but like at least he did that it is still amazing to me and again he's an amazing man uh and a great coach but the fact that that track record that I just read to you got a six-year, $78.5 million contract, that, Jake, you can't cut ties with the coach. Like, there's a lot of things that the Pistons will do. I, I There's no way the coach is not resigning, and I don't think you can fire him at this point. Yeah, you definitely can't. I mean, Monty's Monty's going to be there. And I don't want to I don't want to sound like a broken record and echo everything that Brandon and Grant already said, but, I mean, they nailed it, right? Like, 
I, I think told Brandon going into last year that the Pistons win total over, I think it was set at like 18 and a half or something, <laughs> was like my play of the year. And of course it went under when Cade, Cade gets hurt. But I was high on this team last year. And then you bring in like the rest. It seems like they have all the right pieces for this to work, right? Like you have the star in Cade who's going to take that jump in what is this year three? You bring in Jaden Ivey, you got Jalen Dern, you got these young explosive pieces. And then you bring in the somewhat, you know, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Monty, like established. That's what I'm looking for. You bring in a somewhat established coach in Monty, and he's supposed to be the missing piece that really gets all this to work together, right? And somehow it's worse than we've ever seen before at, at 27 or 28 now, whatever it is. I, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know what you change because there's, if you can trade, sure, they can trade Bogdanovich if they want to. Um, I mean, they can trade Alec Burks. I don't know where you're going to get there. But you don't want to move on outside of Killian Hayes. I don't think you can move on from any of these young pieces. Like Marcus Sasser is another guy that I'm high on that that, that I think looks great. Um, I mean, no, didn't have a great, I think only played 10 minutes last night. But they have the young explosive pieces and it feels like they're on, like the rebuild is kind of where it's supposed to be. But somehow they've lost they haven't won a game since the Arizona Diamondbacks have, which is unbelievable. <laughs> That's an amazing That's stat. a crazy stat. <laughs> That's right. Okay, oh, I put it this way from, from at school. The Pistons haven't won a game since Wisconsin controlled their own destiny in the Big Ten <laughs> West, and that was before Halloween. <laughs> oh. um, just because well, this, this group has not uh, gotten a chance to talk since Christmas Day, uh, want to uh, once again talk about the Lakers didn't beat, again, I have no issue with them losing to the best team in the league. The issue that, that I have is the direction this, this team is going in post the in-season tournament. And again, these problems have been there the entire season. Um, uh, the other reason that I'm a little bit uh, you know, ca- cautiously optimistic is you know, the, the moves that Rob did at the trade deadline lead, lead me to believe that if there are some tweaks that need to be made, they will do them. But Brandon... Uh, I'm really surprised that this season with the group that they brought in and I was extremely high on them coming off of the last year, there's no momentum that that's been built. I mean, I thought that the fact that they're, they're keeping this core, core group together, they're beginning to gel. When I say beginning to gel, like post trade deadline, the run that they went on, you bring that core group back, you bring in some pieces. It just has not happened. What has not happened and can this problem be fixed? I think it's more about, I know Jake will disagree on this point. I don't think they're a bad basketball team. I think they're actually, if you put them in a series tomorrow, they would win against 27 teams probably in the NBA. I still firmly believe that because they get up when it matters. They do. Christmas, they would have won that game if they had not been down 20. There's a lack of intensity that starts in the locker room. So I know that sounds like uh, back and forth, but yes, they get down by 20 a lot. But if the game really matters, like the Celtics game, they got back in and had a chance to win, right? Like they coast against bad opponents, which is not good. The Celtics just beat down opponents. By the way, we shouldn't be comparing them to the Celtics are by far the best team in the league right now. I mean, they have the Avengers starting five. I mean, once they added Porzingis and Holiday, then some Celtics fan in our group chat was complaining about depth. I'm like, bro, like, how are you going to complain about depth when you traded for Holiday and Porzingis and you got Tatum? Whatever. That's beside the point. My point here is, if they trade Russell for, I'll give Grant credit here, a Malcolm Brogdon type, he was the first to bring it up. 
a guy that can play a little defense and kind of do what Russell can do offensively, you know, obviously to a lesser degree, but he still provides efficiency and he can get guys open. That's a direction they can go. And I really don't want to see them move off of Reeves though. I think all of the Laker fans would be heartbroken if they traded Reeves. They don't need Zach Levine. They don't need DeJounte Murray. I don't know why they keep star searching. They have their stars, get some depth, you know, like they'll win on defense. They're not going to like, I don't think Zach Levine wins you a championship. I don't think DeJounte Murray wins you a championship. Those are just extra guys that you're going to trade depth for when you need that depth. So that's I my just, rant. I just, I just think I think trading the right depth would help because I've mentioned this so many times is that I've seen it with the Clippers where they have depth and you say, oh, they're the most deep team in the league, but half of that depth doesn't even get used or it's not utilized correct or it's hard to find spots for guys. I think I feel like that same thing is happening with the Lakers right now and a lot of heat is on Darvin Ham and rightfully so in some aspects, but the rotations need to get figured out. And what's one way to kind of accelerate that and help that? It's by trade. And that's the reason why Austin Reeves kind of got an expanded role after the trade deadline last year is because they traded away Russell Westbrook. They let Reeves handle the ball more, get more playing time. And that kind of sparked their run to kind of sort out things. I think the Lakers, they don't need a star. Like you said, Brandon, a Levine, a DeJounte Murray, uh, anybody like that, maybe a better role player. You can do a two for one for like a Malcolm Brogdon, um, but they don't need another star star they don't need to go all in with a blockbuster this team is good enough on the they just need to do stuff around the edges i think that's all it is jake yeah, yeah. When, when you say that you don't think that this is a good team right now can they make certain adjustments that will make them a championship contending team I think they can, but I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that, as we talked about yesterday, Roger, I think the West is fairly wide open. Yeah. Um, and I do think that is going to allow them. If, if this roster was, if we put this Lakers team in last year's Western Conference with the Nuggets and a team that was just significantly dominant, um, then probably not. But there's not a team like that this year. At least Denver hasn't. We haven't seen that out of Denver this year. I mean, we have in spurts, but not consistently. Um, I mean, again, it's just, it's you know the end of December, so we got a lot of time before this really starts to matter. Um, but if they can make the right changes, I think, of course. But I think, you know, we've talked about it last week. I don't think they can wait until the trade deadline to start yeah. doing that. I think they need to make the moves that they deem necessary and help let those guys start to mesh so that every game down the stretch is in a playoff game that once you get to the play-in tournament, because I'm sure that's where they're going to end up, um, and then hopefully eventually the playoffs, you're not just gassed. Like yeah. you need, there needs to be something left in the tank. There really needs to be a lot left in the tank. So you can turn it up as, you know, Brandon thinks that the Lakers do in every big game that matters. Well, listen, I mean, the joke was this like in season tournament, which again, for whatever reason that they, they played up for those games. I mean, LeBron wanted to be the first ever in season tournament champion. And uh, I touched on this on the show yesterday, guys, if the Lakers season comes to a close, whether they miss the playoffs, losing the play-in, or losing the first round, take down that godforsaken banner. No, we do not need to celebrate a season that comes to a close that way. Like, that's an absolute joke. Like, it's a joke now, but hey, uh, well, let's just see how this all plays out. But if this season comes to a close where they either miss the playoffs, losing the play-in, or get bounced in round one, take it down. Take down that banner. Okay, let's, let's switch gears because we did not get to talk to Brandon yesterday um okay i actually just want to talk in general about the national football league but i have thought this entire season that it is san francisco like jake 
Well, San Francisco and the rest of the league. And the reason I said that is that they beat the crap out of the Cowboys. They beat the crap out of Philadelphia. That I said, there's there's no one that's going to beat this team. And not only did Baltimore go into Santa Clara and beat this team, they did to San Francisco what they've done to the best teams in the league. Brandon, how the heck did that happen? Uh, I would say two things. I, I think the Ravens felt disrespected. I think it's a microcosm of, you know, Brock, t- Brock Purdy takes a lot of risks. And I think, you know, at, at one point when you take risks like that, they're going to backfire, especially against a good defense. I still think Brock Purdy is a top 10 quarterback. I think he's a top five quarterback this year. Uh, I don't think one game you can take away against the best defense in the league and say, oh, yeah, I mean, two of those picks were not his fault. Two of those were bad plays, and undoubtedly they lost in the game. If it was a 0-0 turnover ratio, I guarantee you it's a one-score game going into the fourth quarter. Okay, The defense was tired. That's why the Ravens were able to mash them like that because Brock kept turning over the ball. And I will say this. I I am not as worried as a lot of other uh, people that believe in this Niners team. Um, they still – them and the Ravens have two of the best DVOs ways in NFL history since 1980. I think they're first and third. Baltimore's playing great. I have not seen them get to the Super Bowl. I do think they do. I just don't see an NFC team other than the Rams, maybe. Like, if the Niners get past the Rams, I think it's just they're playing with house money. Then it's like Dallas comes in. Dallas is a mess, especially in Santa Clara. Billy comes in, like, Come on. I mean, if Hurts is still playing like he's playing right now, it's like they barely beat the Giants. They're not going to win in Santa Clara. And then it's like, okay, then you get Baltimore again in the Super Bowl. That's what would worry me if I'm a Niners fan, because I think they're by far the two best teams in the league. I don't think one game changes anything. I do think Kyle needs to change his game plan, though. He cannot negative script the game when, you know, he's excellent on the first couple possessions. Like if Brock doesn't throw that pick, San Francisco wins that football game, the first pick. I'll tell you that right now. Like that's a momentum shifter beyond all momentum shifters. They've been beating down teams because of that first possession, those first couple possessions. And if they're down, they lose. If they're down by a lot, they lose. They cannot come back more than six or ten points. That's how you beat the Niners. The Ravens are the best team in the league. There's no doubt about it. But I would not be concerned about the, for the Niners unless they play the Rams. So they do play in two weeks at a facto playoff game. Although the Rams can probably lose that game and still be in. I don't care what Rams fans say. I think they're in <laughs> if they lose that game. I mean, the rest of the NFC sucks. Yeah. I mean, Grant, it's so interesting. The, the, the way that, that the Rams are, are talked about is a little bit like the, the Bills. Like, no one wants to play these teams in the playoffs because regardless of what the spread is, what the line is, like, I, I think if the Rams offense is humming and the defense is doing what we've seen that they can do, no one wants to play them. I mean, where's your confidence level with this team right now? Uh, it's as high as it's been all year. Obviously, it's I think it's as high as it's been in two years. I mean, since the playoff run that they had in the Super Bowl, because last year was a disaster, and the first, you know, the middle of this season was a little bit of a disaster too. Look, we we've always said, and everybody said this: if you keep Matthew Stafford upright and healthy with the weapons that he has, Cooper Cup playing like he is right now. Puka Nakua being that emergent guy, Kyron Williams being that emergent guy. He's putting up numbers better than Todd Gurley's best year as a Ram. If you have all that going for you and you have an offensive line that has stayed relatively healthy, 
Of course, they're going to be a good football team. They're going to be a good offense. What I did not see was the defense becoming what it is now. Aaron Donald, Kobe Turner, you know, Jake's mentioned this in shows past. Those two rookies, Byron Young and Kobe Turner, have been excellent for the Rams. So you put that together with Akella Witherspoon, Kobe Durant, Quinton Lake. They kind of put piece things together, and Raheem Morris has put together kind of a good defensive strategy against some of these teams, albeit the, they gave up a few touchdowns late to the last two teams they played. But if I'm playing a Niners team, if I'm playing a Philadelphia Eagles team, a Cowboys team, a Niners team, anybody who may, who it may be, I'm pretty confident going in there because I know that my offense is going to put up some points. They put up 30-plus against the Ravens, who just beat down on the Niners. So if I'm a Rams fan, if I'm the Rams players, I'm saying, hey, yeah, we had a few bad games toward the end of the games last two weeks, but we have the ability to be one of the best teams in all of football. And that's why people are saying the Bills with a good quarterback and the Rams yeah. with a good quarterback are threatening. I mean, here's the thing. It's the one playoff game that I think a lot of people are hoping that we see. And again, I know we have a big game on Saturday, Cowboys and the Detroit Lions, but a playoff game, Matthew Stafford versus Jared Goff, the Rams versus the Lions, uh, you know, uh, Sean McVay versus Jared Goff. I think, I think everyone, Wants to see that, but uh, just seeing the Rams back at this, it was just weird seeing a Sean McVay coach team post-Super Bowl struggle the way they did a year ago. I know a lot of guys got hurt. It's just really nice to see them be uh, to, to play significant games, meaningful games late in the season. All right, let's leave it there for now. When we come back, we're going to go Hollywood. The Boys in the Boat, new movie that came out Christmas Day about the University of Washington team. University of Washington rowing team that won gold medal at the Berlin Olympics. Had a chance to talk to some of uh, that cast, so uh, we'll uh, play that for when for you guys when we come back right here on the Mighty 1090 in Southern California, the Bet in Las Vegas, and the Hawaii Sports Radio Network. We'll be right back with the Arash Markazi Show on the Mighty 1090 ESPN Radio. what drives everyone to make the most of every moment we celebrate living large in the now in a city where time disappears we create experiences that electrify the soul and memories that will last forever we go big we go all night and here everyone is invited so get loose and get loud this is circa you'll have the time of your life This is the Arash Markazi Show on the Mightier 1090 ESPN Radio. Welcome back to the Arash Markazi Show presented by the Sporting Tribune on the Mightier 1090 ESPN Radio in Southern California. 98.5 The Bet in Las Vegas and the Hawaii Sports Radio Network. 95.1 FM and AM 760 in Hawaii. Wanted to play for you now a sit-down conversation we had with two of the stars of the new film, The Boys in the Boat. The Boys in the Boat is a 1930 set story centered on the University of Washington rowing team that won gold, amazingly, at the 1936 Olympics. So we're going to now play for you a conversation we had with Callum Turner, who played Joe Rance, and Joel, Joel Edgerton, who played uh, the head coach of the team. So we'll play that conversation for you right now. He's wounded. He's a wounded individual. And... He's used to being wounded. He's used to being abandoned. He's used to being alone. He's used to dealing with things in a very 
um, quiet way. And that's part of the struggle for him in uh, being part of a team and being responsible for eight other guys uh, and being responsible for the boat rather than just himself. He has to learn to become a team player. And that's, you know, on a soul level, that's the thing that is so beautiful for Joe that he, um, he understands that, he learns, he learns what that means and he grows. Up until, up until the Poughkeepsie race, Joe's just doing it, he's going through the motions. It's only when he's really forced to look into the mirror, Albrechtson kicks him out of the boat because his head's spinning and he's not concentrating, he's not being a team member. Albrechtson kicks him out of the boat and in that moment he realises he's got a choice and can he face up to it, can he take responsibility, can he be part of a team or is he going to do the same thing as he's always done and retreat and hide and um, he makes the decision in that moment to take responsibility and once he takes responsibility for his part in the boat and the boat itself, he he becomes a leader and he becomes um, someone that the other guys can look to and rely on. And he enjoys it. Roger Albrechtson was an extremely uh, um, stoic, shadowy figure to the boys up until they get into the, they get selected to be in the boat. He's sort of uh, uh, hidden away and this godlike figure to everyone. Um, and what's really brilliant is the way that Joel plays it. Um, but also, you know, he dressed incredibly well. So what Jenny Egan's done with him adds to that. Um, and Martin shot him. There's a lot of silhouettes of him. It becomes sort of this really shadowy figure, uh, which is cool. Um, but they don't get to know him as a man until much later. Joyce is someone that Joe used to ride the bus with to school. And once he learned the banjo, he would play songs to her and make her laugh and do anything for her attention. And when his family left him, he, she moved away as well, simultaneously, and they didn't see each other for a few years until they come back to university. And there she is. Uh, and she comes bounding over and says, I know who you are. Um, and it's the, it's the childhood sweetheart. It's the girl that he loved from the, the early days. And uh, she helps him a lot because she's stable. She's a stable person. And he's never had that in his life. It's, I guess that's what all of these people are. They're stable people for him to learn how to walk again. The first was our first day of training for rowing. And we were awful and none of us knew what we were doing. To the point where now we push our, ourselves and push each other um, to drive the rate up and to go as fast as we can. And we're all incredibly proud of, of each other um, because of that. Uh, and we really did go through it. I mean, lots of arguments. Jack and I actually are the ones that argue the most because he sits in the eight, I'm in the seven, and you know the cox is in front of him. And so he, he, we can't see anything and we're trying to work out. He drives the boat, basically, the speed of the boat. And he's, you know, we go at each other a lot um, and we enjoy it. Uh, so to the point where we're, from the beginning, where we couldn't do it to now, it's extraordinary. Like what we've been able to achieve has, has blown my mind. I didn't think we'd be able to do that. To be lifted up in the way that we have felt it 
has been incredible. And the story, the uh, rags to riches almost doesn't do it justice, you know. The, what these guys go through, like you say, where they've come from, most of these guys have a pot to piss in and they have to, they have to find it from somewhere to, to, to achieve what they achieved. Um, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful story and there's loads of things. I was actually talking about the, the Jubilee weekend that we had here the other day and it was so nice to see everyone together and everyone, and it's such a rarity and that's what this film does. It brings people together and they achieve something extraordinary against all odds. Uh, Hadley Robinson's incredible. She brings a, a, a beautiful energy and um, really grounded and truthful in moments that our moments are, uh, are really beautiful because of the way that she plays them and because of the truth that she brings. And uh, her choice is, is really wonderful. He's an incredible actor. He's one of the best, as far as I'm concerned. Someone that I look at him and I think the, the jobs that he does and the way he acts is, is how I want to do it, you know? It's really, uh, it's, it's wonderful what he does. And um, it's just a beast. He's a pure beast. And he, 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 he makes Ulbrichsen really human, you know? It's uh, a lot of the stuff that, you know, it's, it's giving instructions or giving uh, uh, orders to the boys or setting out the rules, but he makes them so genuine. You live in that moment. But they're just amazing guys, first and foremost. They're just really chilled. Nothing's a bother. They've been there, they've done it, they've seen it. And you feel very safe immediately to be yourself, you know? And that's an important thing. You feel part of the team, you feel part of the, the creative decisions, you know? There's never a no. There's a maybe and let's have a look at it. Um, and I love them both, they're amazing. I've had such a nice time. Everyone on this set's happy and that's because of those guys. They set the tone as, al as always the top down and everyone's just thrilled to bits to be here. Um, and then to be directed by George, I'm learning from a master ultimately. I mean, I could beat around the bush, but I'm learning from someone that, that, that has done this for a while and, and has done it really incredibly well. And I'm learning, I'm learning, learning, I'm learning. And, and uh, I made the decision very early doors to be like, I commit to you, whatever you think, let's go and I'll try to find within that, within the boundaries you give me. And yeah, it's been great. It's been a really wonderful, beautiful experience. Everyone loves an underdog story because I believe most people in the world are an underdog and we can align ourselves with these heroes as they go through their journey and they achieve the unthinkable. And that's what these guys do, ultimately. And um, at every point in their journey, they're doubted and they're pushed and they're prodded and they're told they can't do it. But they all have, with this belief from Albrechtson, a through line in which they they deep down know that they can, they can do something incredible, and they do it. When I first read the screenplay for Boys in the Boat, it just seemed to me to be a completely, perfectly laid out, winning, uh, and feel good, you know, story, sports story. And 
you know, every now and then a story comes along that you feel like it's sort of, in terms of, you know, like a, a story or a movie is a little bit almost too good to be true. Um, and for the most part, apart from leaving some things out and condensing certain aspects of this story, it's pretty much laid out the way it was. You know, stuff's compressed and, as I said, stuff's... There's more stuff to put in there and you could make a much longer film, but the real events lend it themselves to such a kind of great sports film. The film carries that, that theme of, uh, of, of unity, you know, given that you've got eight boys in one vessel and, you know, no matter how great the individual may be, they're only as good as the eight of them or the nine of them working together. Um, and I think that's pretty kind of cool and crucial. I mean, and, and also it's a tough sport. And it is a tough sport and unique in that sense that it's not just, um, you know, I mean, I mean, look, every, every sport has its own sort of unique qualities, but the idea that you've got eight people uh, having to be in complete synchronicity and aligned in sense of their own power and each position on the boat has its own little specialties in a way. But essentially you've got, you know, eight guys trying to be as equally powerful as each other. Well, Al Ulbrichsen is, uh, you know, he's the coach of the varsity and the junior varsity team. And in the context of our story, you know, what, what is important is that Al was a champion rower himself, although that's not really brought too much into focus, but he understands the sport from the inside. Um, and in terms of the sense of uh, the story being about an array of underdogs, even Ulbrichsen as a coach, you know, in his suits and his sort of large office and, and his university posting, is still we get a sense that if things don't work out for, for him and the team, um, that is always a couple of decisions away from losing funding and potentially losing his job. And that he has to answer to a bunch of sort of money people and, and that the university itself, in terms of the sport of rowing, is an underdog. Um, so, you know, Al is this... Uh, I, you know what I saw Ulbrichsen as? I've always been fascinated, and this is what my early conversations with George and Grant were. I'm always fascinated by the coach that's on the sideline of the football field or on the side of the swimming pool who just doesn't look like they're enjoying a single moment of the sport that they've dedicated their life to. And while on one hand you could judge that person as angry or bitter or frustrated, it's all born out of a desire to succeed. In my mind, Albrechtson is like a um, is like a tough father or like a tough love kind of father. And they can really inspire, but they can also be hard to reach, you know. And so there's there's all these sort of moments in the script where even Albrechtson's wife is is letting him know that he looks. He actually looks okay when he smiles. That he, she, everybody's sort of wondering why, why this guy is not enjoying himself. 
And I felt like that was a really good thing to hold on to leading into the movie is that this guy just doesn't seem to not only enjoy himself but show much warmth, you know, and as a result you'll see in the film the speeches, the pre-game speeches to the boys are not necessarily like, he's not an inspiring orator. <laughs> it's very much like this many strokes, this is what you do in the first half of the race, this is what you do in the second half of the race, watch out for this problem in the water, but it's not like what happens towards the end, which is letting them know that he's actually proud of them. You know, all underdog stories uh, have a character that is, uh, has the whole, um, whole set of obstacles stacked against them. Um, and Joe is somebody who's essentially homeless um, and comes to rowing not because he has love for the sport. Um, he comes to rowing because he has a desire to put a roof over his head and money in his pocket and, and to, to get a seat on the rowing team means that he'll get a dormitory and he'll get a job. Um, and the problem with Joe is that he's a loner and he's been forced into being a loner by being abandoned by his, his own family and, and kind of fending for himself from, from a very young teenage uh, age. And so by this set of circumstances, he's physically capable enough to earn a seat on the boat and he has the promise to be a good rower, but what he has to learn to do is to become part of a family again and to trust that he can do that. And I guess in some ways, Albrechtson starts to become in some ways like a, 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 a role, takes on the role of a father to him. Not in the sense that we are spending a lot of time, um, what's the word, you know, growing fond of each other. But certainly he would see uh, the ability to be accepted or to be rejected in me. Oh, George is the most beautiful uh, character. Uh, you know, he is, he's basically the builder of the, of the shelves. Um, and there's, it seems to be this sort of mysterious um, and an uplifting kind of folklore around George Pocock. Seemed to be a person that um, people loved, was highly respected, he built shells for all sorts of universities and um, from the Ivy League schools and he was, he was in-house at, at Washington for a time at least. Just a guy who knew his stuff and, and was the best at it. And really kind of in our story you get a sense he's, he's, he's sort of the closest thing to a Jedi that we've got in this. You know, like he's, he's like a man who understands the sport as poetry. Um, he reveres it in a way, it, 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 it's a religion um, when you're around George and, and he sees it as, as a beautiful thing. Boys in the Boat is a film about finding a family, I think, you know, um, and about achieving something together. And, and, and while these boys don't know each other, you know, the bond that's formed and it's, it's, it's very personal, it's very human, so I think that um, it's not, it won't just be a rowing film, it'll be a film about um, pulling something out of yourselves that you, d you didn't know you had.
You know, there's a certain swagger and a masculinity to certain actors. And then if they are willing to and confident enough to show a dimension of, you know, vulnerability and fragility um, or fear, it, it makes for a full person. It makes for a more interesting character. And I think that's something that Callum is very interesting because of that. He, he's, um, he's a big guy and he's, um, he's obviously very confident uh, in some aspects and, you, you know, the impression, the silhouette of him is that he's a capable man and a tough guy in, in some aspects, but there's also a softer side to him. So to be able to see the boy and the man at the same time, I think is really is really good and, and you know, some of my favourite actors have that quality um, or have that duality. I'm always impressed by actors that make films um, and particularly actors that make good films um, and that have a track record of making good... And George has made a handful of movies, you know, a good handful. And uh, I was just curious, like, what it would be like being on set with him uh, and, you know, it makes sense, but he knows a set. Like, and, you know, if, you, if you're a smart actor and you're interested in filmmaking, you start to observe what's going on. You can definitely switch off to that stuff and go to your trailer and walk out and be like, where's my mark? And I'll say this and then I'll go back to my trailer. But if you want, you can really kind of sponge up information. Um, and he really knows how a set works, he knows how a, a camera works, where to put a camera, how efficiently he could shoot certain scenes versus um, uh, being very meticulous about other ones. And he's super confident about when he's happy to move on. Um, like really confident about going, okay, I've got two takes in the can, I'm happy with them, I'm going to move on. Whereas you might, in the hands of a, of, I mean, every director's different. I wouldn't say it's a lack of confidence to do multiple takes, but some people really do overshoot things. Um, but the long and the short of it is George really understands the technical requirements of a set. Um, he knows the equipment. He knows everybody's, you know, he doesn't presume to do everybody's job, but he obviously knows what everybody's job is. Um, he's a great person to be around. And he and Grant have done an incredible amount of research. Look, I hope, you know, I guess in some way I feel like the audience should have a really celebratory experience, you know, and maybe sitting in a cinema, if that's what I hope they do, that they'll feel like an extension of, of, of the crowd at the Olympics or at Poughkeepsie. Um, I just think it's an interesting and a crucial time to be watching stories that make us feel good. All right, that was Joel Edgerton, who played uh, head coach of that team, Coach Al Olbertson of the University of Washington rowing team, and Callum Turner, who played the star of the film, Joe Rance. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. Let's do it again tomorrow. Until then, this is Arash Markazi saying stay safe, stay healthy. This is the Arash Markazi Show on the Mightier 1090 ESPN Radio. 
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.